Tonight we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 25. And we're continuing on with the events where David, the great King David, has been anointed to be king. He has served faithfully as a a commander in King Saul's army in Israel there. It's about 1000 B.C. He's been faithful. Saul is his father-in-law. He married Saul's daughter. But Saul has a distressing spirit upon him. God has rejected him. He's going nuts, literally. And David has anointed the Holy Spirit upon him. And Saul's uh, attacking, pursuing, and, and persecution and tribulations against David it's making David to be the man of God he's meant to be, along with the men who've associated with him, the 400-plus men that we saw last week were at the cave of Adullam with them and their families. And so this is an ongoing thing that went on for years from between the time that he defeated Goliath, had victory, and before he comes to become the king, that is David, after the death of Saul, which is around the corner, actually, in the latter part of this book as we're moving toward the back end of 1 Samuel here in May. So as we pick it up in chapter 24, that's our background. David just escaped the latest attempt of Saul to get him at the place that we call the Rock of Escape. That's what the Bible calls it. And so now the story goes forward. He's still being pursued, and we're in the middle of this scene, this background. And so chapter 24, verse 1 says this. Now it happened... When Saul, that is King Saul, had returned from following the Philistines, footnote, because he left David when he had David surrounded because news came that the Philistines were attacking Israel, so he left David. That's how David got away at the Rock of Escape. That it was told him, Saul, there in verse 1, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfold by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs, that is, to go to the bathroom, in the cave. And David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, it happened afterward that David... David's heart troubled him because he'd cut off Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. This is a profound event and very distinct from how most men and women who are esteeming for power, how they would respond to a situation like this and really shows how David does have a heart for the Lord and how he's growing as he's going through these tribulations and trials and that he's keeping his heart in a good place. Because remember, God said that David has a heart for the Lord. And whereas we've seen with Saul, he always wants to be the center of attention. He always wants to avenge himself. He wants people to feel sorry for him. It's all about him. David, in the midst of this situation, He assesses the situation, takes action that he regrets, and then takes the correct action to set that straight. So picture this contextually. Here comes Saul with 3,000 choice men. 3,000. Now remember, David's got 600 men at this time from the cave of Abdullah. There are 400, then they became 600. The numbers are, you know, five to one with Saul's men, and Saul is the king in power, 
And these are elite military force men. He's coming with 3,000 elite men after David, whose men, last chapter we checked on them, they're in distress, in debt, and discontent. They're still being shaped. Like, they're still in their boot camp of training for character, moral fiber, military abilities, and things like that. And now they had previously gotten away at the Rock of Escape, and here they are in this cave, and lo and behold, here's the golden opportunity. This is a chance because we know so often in military endeavors, if you cut off the head, you, you kill the snake, as they say. So if you get the head of anything so often, you bring down the head, then it changes the game, and particularly in war, when you cut off certain generals. For example, in the Civil War, when Stonewall Jackson died in the Battle of Fredericksburg, um, that was it. It changed the whole, whole Civil War campaign because he's one of the greatest generals of all time. And that just changed it. So when you take out key people or key leaders, it changes it. So here in this situation, David could have taken out Saul. And everyone knew he was anointed. Saul killed his thousand. David his ten thousands. So who's going to, like, who the three thousand men are going to, who's going to really make a scene? Like, who's going to really, it's kind of like the, the Wizard of Oz, when the witch, you know, melts. And Dorothy thinks that, you know, they're all going to get her. And the, the guards are relieved that the witch, wicked witch of the West is dead, right? It's kind of like that idea, like, who's going to stop David from being king in that situation or maybe not rally to him? Because everyone knew he was meant to be the king. And even as we get into the next chapter, we'll see this all the more affirmed in the next chapter tonight. But David, he did the one thing and his heart. His heart convicted him. And this is a really good application because so often things are not as they appear to be. And you say, oh, this is the Lord. And then you take a step in that direction. You're like, I don't know, man. This, this, maybe this isn't the Lord. You, you know what I'm talking about? Especially with bigger decisions. The bigger decision, you know, they give you the three-day cooling-off period when you buy a brand-new car. In case you decide, like, you know, we, 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 we shouldn't have done this. We should have just, let's take this car back. We once put a deposit down on a house in Marietta. Isn't that crazy? Think We were living in Vista in 1999, and there was a new subdivision being built with a view of Palomar Mountain. Gorgeous upper lot, and we saw the, the model homes, and we, we put the money down. I was teaching at the Bible college at Marietta at the time, and we thought, this is what the Lord's doing. This is before we, worship generation, before we knew we were going to be on staff with Pastor Chuck. This is like a month before Brian Broderson called me and invited me to come on staff at Big Calvary with Pastor Chuck. So we're just trying to figure out what the Lord's calling us to do because I wasn't going to do the deal with Billabong for three years. The guy was closing that door. We're like, maybe we're supposed to go to be involved with the Bible college. We'll live in Marietta. We'll do this. And, And we put this offer down. And within just a matter of a day or so, Jennifer's like, I just think that's not the Lord at all. It's just no, 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 no. And we took a step in a direction, and the Lord gave us his conviction of the heart like that's not it. In fact, the New Testament tells us in the book of Colossians, Paul the Apostle, led by the Holy Spirit, says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Now, for a non-believer, this is not applicable. A non-believer, their conscience might condemn them. The Holy Spirit might convict them outside of their hearts of a right or a wrong. But for the believer, the Spirit of God dwells in us. And so he will we can be grieved, we can be quenched, or we can quench the Spirit. The Spirit will guide us. And that term there in Colossians is the term for an umpire in baseball or softball. Like, so literally, that's the word we use that, that comes from that. It has the idea of like safe or out. So when you, we live by faith, we walk by faith. And so we seek the Lord, we trust Him with all of our heart, lean not on our own understanding. We acknowledge Him in all of our ways, let Him direct our steps. 
And sometimes we can think something through, and then sometimes it's just right there. Saul's in the cave, and he's going to the bathroom, and he's trying to kill us. And you've got your mighty men going like, this is it. This is where we t- we're tired of running around in circles, you know, living like vagabonds, running for our life from this man. This is it. This is the Lord. You write songs about deliverance from our enemies. This is it. So David goes over and cuts the robe, but then, then that, that peace of God that rules in your heart, it's, he doesn't have the peace. It looks like this, but this isn't it. This isn't the way God's going to do this. And so his heart convicted him, or we could say his heart stopped him. And this is really important for believers. As we grow in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we learn to get that frequency where we can call balls and strikes safe and out pretty quick. You know, when you're an umpire or a referee, you, you want to make that call quick. By the way, in pro surfing, when you score pro surfing and you're a coach at a pro surf contest or a world championship, which I've been, the longer it takes a score to drop, now they're overthinking it. You know, paralysis by analysis. It, you know, this wave looks like this. It's probably a 675, an 825, or a 425. Like, instinctively, these judges in the tower all day long, and they get the score, and there it is, and you drop it. Great umpires, major league umpires, how many balls and strikes do they get a game? It's like 130, 140, 150 pitches thrown in a game. 160 in that no-hitter that uh, I think it was, I forget what team it was, the Mets, six pitchers and no-hitter a couple weeks ago. Six pitchers, 160 pitches, most pitches for a no-hitter. That umpire is there, 160 pitches. Three, ball, three. Like, that's instinctive, right? It has to happen quick. So we have to make quick decisions sometimes, and you make it, And usually your first instinct is the correct instinct, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not. It's like in football when you see the refs going to other refs, like, hey, did you see that play? Was that a pass interference? Like, sometimes it's not. And that's what you have here. You think you're supposed to buy this property. You think you're supposed to buy this car. And now you're really thinking, like, nah, that's not the Lord. And and you run the metrics and the numbers, you realize, hey, that's a bad idea. You know, And, and so... This is something that's important because you, you, we have to walk by faith, live by faith. We pray about moving to Tennessee. We pray about serving overseas. We make these big decisions. Brian Broderson came to me in 1990, excuse me. Brian Broderson came to me in 1997 and asked me to pray about going to England on the coast there uh, near Cornwall, Newquay, where they have pro surf contests and doing ministry. I said no, but then Phil Petronas said yes who worked at Island Water Sports in Florida at the time. We became great friends, and he's in glory now, Phil is. We still support his wife, though, yearly, his widowed wife. We, we can take steps, and you're like, mm, not sure. The higher the stakes, the more important it is you are sure. We always taught our kids that. You don't need to double clutch which shoes you're going to wear today, but when you're talking about saying yes to an engagement, various other things that you might do. It's, it's important that like you, you have that call, but when you can have a split-second decision that happens could affect your life profoundly. What if David does kill Saul right here? How different is the story? We might even have the story. He's no different than all these European kings who had come to power in the last 500 years and kill everyone that was a threat to them and their throne. Duchesses, uh, land barons, baronesses, like that's what they would do. This moment where David says, his heart says, You're, this is not your place, is a critical moment because he obeys the Lord 
that moment, he took a step, and then he knows it's not it, and he obeys the Lord. And that's what a woman of God and a man of God really does. When, when the peace of God is removed with that decision, and your own heart condemns you or convicts you, the Lord and your own conscience, this is not the right thing to do. And that's the moment when you need to say, no. It's like Joseph in Potiphar's house when the wife is trying to seduce him. Like, flee youthful lust. We had a man the other day tell us recently that a woman was coming on him and he, he ran away. And we're all like, well, that was the right thing to do. Right? Like, that was the right, because he's married. Even so, it's still the right thing to do. This is so critical. Think about everything beautiful of David's life, the Psalms, the stories, all that. What if he doesn't do this right here and obey the Lord and stop himself? How different the whole Bible would be. This is what makes the woman of God the woman of God and the man of God the man of God when they can take a step back and say, you know what, this is not for me to do. It's not my place. And having that firm conviction, now he's got the conviction to tell us 400 mighty men, it's not our place. And once you really know strongly in your heart, no, that's not what we're going to do. Then you can lead others in that same conviction. When the man of God with a heart for God has a piece of Saul's robe and he's got 400 men or however many with him, saying, like, dude, this is it right here. We turn the table. This is where, and he's like, no, it's not for me to do this. When you've got that kind of conviction in your faith and you've got the kind of credibility and equity of faith that David does have with these men, now he's going to lead him. Because remember last chapter, when they were going to go fight the Philistines, he's like, the Lord showed him, let's do it. But his army wouldn't follow him. So he had to go back to the Lord a second time, then go back to him and say, I'm telling you a second time, the Lord's going to give us victory. Then they followed him. See, it's not just him and his heart, how it affects him. It's him and his heart and his witness with those he's leading, how it affects them as well. So when you're the boss and you cross the line that God says, hey, I'm trying to stop you and you follow through, it affects everybody. The culture affects everybody in the culture of your workplace or in your family. This is such a key moment in this story, in this book for all of us, because he stopped himself from doing what seemed natural and even just to do. But he restrained himself, and in so doing, he had the ability and the credibility to restrain those he was leading. And how much better on the day of Christ Jesus to stand before the Lord knowing that you restrained yourself, vindicating yourself, and you restrained those who are with you from being a part of that vindication. How much better to know that you let it go, you didn't stumble those you're leading, and you let the Lord work it out. Amen? Amen. This is a powerful lesson right here in David. This is why David is, this is why he's going to be the king. Because he's not like, the, not just a king, but a great king, because anyone can be a boss. But to be a godly leader and to be a shepherd of God's people, this is why he's the shepherd. Now we read on verse 8. David also rose after and went out of the cave and called out to Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look this day, your eyes have seen the Lord deliver you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, 
Yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. No one see there is no evil, nor rebellion in my hand. I've not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord's judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. And as the proverb of the ancients says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom you pursue? A dead dog, a flea? Therefore let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. David, this is so, again, this is the carryover of this moment. In this scene and in these events, in this cave and in the moments that pass and all this, he's realizing that he cannot force himself to bring about the promises of God nor the timing of God or the vindication of God. He is going to trust in the Lord. God anointed him when he was 17 years old, probably, called him in from the field before his father and his brothers, and the prophet Samuel poured the oil on his head as confirmation to be the king. Within a year or two, he defeats Goliath when everyone's living in terror and brings great victory. He didn't come this far trusting the Lord in God's timing to force the matter and vindicate himself. Like, The Lord will see us through. And again, this reminds us, he'll see it through. We don't ever want to be ahead of the Lord. We don't want to be inactive or or, or behind the Lord in in the sense of like we won't move. But the Lord's our shepherd. That means he's leading us. David wrote in Psalm 23, he leads me beside still water and, and, and to the green grass of peaceful meadows, right? Like he leads me. And so David knew that he's going to let the Lord lead him and He's not going to avenge himself. Those great injustices that we are affected by, that in our life's journey, the longer we live, we'll realize some of them, we just can do absolutely nothing about them except give them to the Lord. And that's the wisest thing we can do. And if he wants to avenge us in time, that's his business. But, you know, when you make it a habit of, like, listening to your heart when it's the Lord and you obey the Lord and you let those things go and you let God deal with those things, they don't even, they don't even occupy your thought process. You move on from them to the next thing. And then maybe years later, it, it played out the vindication. And it, it didn't even mean anything to you because you already moved on. You gave it to the Lord. You forgave the people. You forgave the situation. And you let it go. That's the best place to be. And if, and if it's not all vindicated, the most beautiful thing could be to be in your 80s or 90s in you know, assisted living care or whatever and have no malice toward anyone and to step into eternity and let the Lord just make it straight when, where he makes it straight because there is no injustice in eternity. But I'm of the mind to think, because there's no tears and sorrow in eternity, that when we get there, we just won't care. We're going to be in glory. We're not going to look like we look like here tonight. We're not going to look like the flower of our youth or the strength of our youth or old or a newborn. We're going to be in glory, like acorn to oak tree or something, you know, like, or like caterpillar to butterfly. Like, we're just going to, I mean, God uses that analogy. And my sister in Florida, she has all these caterpillars that are turning these beautiful monarch butterflies. And she has the plants that you get at Home Depot where they eat them. And then you watch them do all this stuff. And I'm over there a couple weeks ago. She showed me, look, they're going to come out. And they just become these big, beautiful fly, uh, butterflies. And how can you compare the, the little, little caterpillar to the butterfly? You wouldn't even recognize it to know it's one and the same. But we will, I truly believe, we'll all know each other in the glory of the coming kingdom. Let the Lord be the judge. That woman sleeps in peace. That man sleeps in peace. But the person who wants to vindicate themselves, there is no peace. There'll just never be peace for that. 
Verse 16, we read on. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown me this day how, how you, have, you have dealt well with me. And for when the Lord delivered me to your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemies, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you surely shall be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore, swear to me now by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. In times past, I maybe not think that much about verse 21 here. Now, Saul's just crazy. Right, he's gonna he's gonna cry. Sob. He's, this is just something we're gonna have for quite a few chapters still till the book is done. But he says in verse twenty one, "Swear to me now that you will not cut off my descendants." And again, this is what I've learned in studying European monarchs in recent years: how when one monarch comes to power and there's a power struggle, the part of the family that comes to power they like they execute everybody. The cousin, the second cousin, the nephews, the nieces, and so often, particularly with women, they, they, when they were deposed, like a queen deposed or whatever, they'd, especially the Russians were notorious for this, they would put them in a, in a convent out of the way, so they would never, that was it. it, it was, their lives were spared to be go, able to go in a convent. There are certain babies, ch- children that were born that could not ever be allowed to be a contender for the throne. They'd be put in mental institutions and stuff like that. This is what the Prussians did, the French this is, what, this is what they did. The British, all of them. The European monarchs, and of course the Asian monarchs as well. This is what they did. So Saul is recognizing that David's going to be the future king, and now Saul's thinking about his family. Because, see, when one king comes to power at the expense of another king in a family line, then this family could be a threat to the, the new king. But if you cut off all their descendants, again, we saw this in the book of Judges, they can't be a threat to the power. There's no nepotism. There's no, there's no line. There's just no line by which the ascension to the throne. Like the Russian czars, when Catherine the Great came to power, she married Peter the Great's grandson. Peter the Great's like died around 1725. Modern Russia is all the result of him. She married the grandson. Now, when that grandson's mom died, that was Peter the Great's daughter. She was the queen. When she died... There was a whole group of politicians that wanted her to be the power because she was much more competent than her husband and they had no sexual intimacy and he was nuts. They had him killed and that cut off the line that came from Peter the Great. But Catherine the Great, she eventually had a child from another man and that son became the czar. When she died, he became czar and made sure there was never another queen in all of Russian history ever again. That's why there's no more queens after Catherine the Great in the Russian, in the czarist line of... Um, right up until the Russian Revolution. This is history. This is how it works. So Saul's like, oh, you're going to be the king. Please spare my children. David's already made a covenant with Jonathan, a covenant of faith. They're best friends. No one's killing anybody. Even after Saul died, what do we see with David towards Saul's descendants? Respect, kindness. He never held anything against the house of Saul. What he said previously in this chapter, he showed, but I will say this about Saul and what he's saying about his descendants. Because this is what I've learned as you get older. When you get in your 60s, you think about your descendants, don't you? You do. You think about your adult children and your grandchildren. 
and you think about what kind of world they're going to grow up in when you're gone. Like you scout your grandkids. Okay, so Zippy's, Zippy's five. So if she gets married at 20, I'll be 76. Right? Clementine gets married at 21, I'll be like 80. You, you, all you have to do is run the numbers like you're investing in something. Just run the numbers. 61, grandkids are this old, weddings, you get the wedding day, you might get to dance at the wedding, you know, you'd be the funny old guy or whatever, like Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins, the most recent one, dancing on the desk or whatever. Like, you get your time. I was like, dude, the old dude's like throwing it down. Haven't we all been to a wedding where some old guy or some old girl gets up and he's like, whoa, throw it down? That's for me in the 80s, maybe, if I live that long. But you start thinking about your descendants, and the Bible tells us a couple things about our descendants, and this is important for us to think about. That first and foremost, we pass on our faith to our children. That the righteous declare the glory of the Lord to the next generation. This is in the Psalms, this is throughout the Bible. Deuteronomy 6, you'll talk about the Lord when you rise up. So then you become adults, and you talk about the Lord to your adult children, whether they walk with the Lord or not, you're still, your life is talking about the Lord to them. And you want to see them come to faith. And you want to see them walk in faith. And you want to see them flourish in their faith and have their faith in Jesus Christ over their life, over their marriages, over their parenting, over their finances, over how they live their life. And you earnestly pray that that's what you'll see and you stand in the gap. And if you see it, good for you. If you don't, you'll stand in the gap until you step into eternity that you will see it someday. And then those grandkids come. And you want to infuse faith and impart faith to them for their journey. And what kind of faith they're going to need in their timeline. Totally different world than the one we grew up in that they're, that's coming for our grandkids. But Jesus is the same yesterday and forever. And he's going to work in every generation until he's done. That's just how it's going to be. So we think about how we're equipping our adult children in the kingdom. And we're thinking about how we're trying to influence our, gra- our grandchildren. And let me say this. There's nothing more beautiful than you walk in your adult children's house and you hear praise music being prayed with, played with your grandkids in the house. That happened to me this week at Jake and Leah's, and I just can't tell you what a joy that is. What a joy that is to hear those songs of praise with kids in the background. And if you don't have grandkids yet, but you have adult kids, that's what you're praying for. That's what you're praying for. We want to direct them toward the Lord. We want to direct them toward common sense. We want to quit them in life to be critical thinkers, to be readers, to think critically for themselves, to test all things, hold fast that which is good. Because the greatest asset apart from their faith in Jesus you give them is good sense and to use their brains. Our, our minor intellect is the greatest asset we have after our heart being set apart to the Lord. Just have them read the Proverbs back and forth their whole life, whatever. It's just... That's what we want to give them. And if you, if you give them financial inheritance, that could mean something. It might not mean anything. I was speaking with someone today, two adult children, gave them equal amount of large sum of money. One bought property in Tennessee, made money, eventually bought property in Southern California, thriving. The other one spent it all, nothing, and wants to know if he gets the parent's house when they step into eternity. And what are you going to do, people? You're going to point them toward Jesus, and you equip them to make good decisions in their adult life. And hopefully they'll do that. We all have, if you're married and you have kids, you have descendants. And we want to see them flourish. So we set them up to flourish spiritually. We encourage them and teach them life skills to flourish practically. And then if we can bless them economically, good, 
But if you equip them to be, use common sense and good sense, they'll figure it out. Between their faith and common sense, God's got them, just like he's got you. So I understand Saul's concern for his descendants, and I think we can relate to that with children and grandchildren. We naturally think of that. And that's why it is good to be smart with your assets and to have a trust and a will in these things. I've been thinking about Billy Graham lately. Well, I've been thinking about Franklin Graham, and I mentioned this already with Samaritan's Purse. I think Samaritan's Purse is probably one of the most esteemed, respected Christian ministries on the planet. There's Open Door that Brother Andrew started. There's different ministries, but really, like, Samaritan's Purse with Franklin Graham is incredible. But Jennifer used to tell me things about Franklin's life when he, in his book, Rebel with a Cause, because, you know, he rebelled against the Lord, but... Even when he was a rebel against the Lord, he worked for BGEA, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Billy had him running benevolent stuff like humanitarian relief in other parts of the world. And even as a rebel with the Lord, God was working his life to teach him how to get relief to far off places of the world, the people in need. In other words, he's being prepared to be the director of Samaritan's Purse when he wasn't even right with the Lord. And Billy Graham, when he was growing up on the farm in North Carolina, he got up at four in the morning to milk the cows. And he came home at four in the afternoon after school and milked the cows, and he hated it. But when he did crusades anywhere where there was dairy farms or in the farmlands of America, like Minneapolis and these places, Des Moines and these places, he'd tell his cow stories, and he'd have a bridge with everyone in the crowd. But Billy Graham learned the value of a day's wage milking cows and was the only employee for Youth for Christ, only paid employee for Youth for Christ as an evangelist in the 40s, right after World War II. But eventually, the BGEA became entrusted with billions of dollars to do all they ever did. And he had the spiritual leadership, the common sense, and he passed on to Franklin and Anne Graham Lotz and the kids. And look what they do now with their ministries. Look what they do now with their ministries. I know of a company, they tie 10% of everything they do to one ministry and one ministry only, Samaritan's Purse. Because they trust it, and we trust it. The shoeboxes, we trust it. That is the good fruit of a man milking cows in the 20s as a teenager. Billy Graham passed on to his children, his children's children, and his children's children's children. The spiritual, the practical, and if it works out, the economic. But really, the third one doesn't matter. Essentially, if you get the first two right, the third one works out, it all gets left behind anyways. So we read on here. Chapter 25. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So here we go. This is the death of the greatest prophet in the last 400 years. In four centuries, there was no one like Samuel. And the Holy Spirit told us that at the beginning of the book. No one like Samuel. From the time that Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land, there was not one leader, not one judge, nobody, Deborah, Barak, Samson, All of them, Gideon, no one was equal to the anointing and the oracle, the authority, the leadership, and the word of God as Samuel. So what a loss. So they're at war with the Philistines all around them. They've got civil unrest with Saul pursuing David. And now that that voice, that that voice, that person that everyone trusted, kind of like when Billy Graham stepped into eternity, you know, because Billy Graham was America's pastor, Samuel was Israel's pastor. And when he stepped into eternity... Is like losing your compass. It's a loss of a great man. That's an important detail. Verse 2. Now there was a man in uh, Moan whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. 
And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Remember Caleb, all that inheritance when they came into the promised land 400 years before? He obviously, the inheritance is still going on. Verse 4, when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him, who lives in prosperity, peace be with you, peace to your house, peace to all you have. Now I've heard that you have shearers, your shepherds were with us, we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they will tell you, therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal, according to all these words in the name of David, and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who's David? And who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each from one of his masters. Wow, what an arrogant man. Just to even say something like that to David is just so... Ah, what do you do? Verse 11. Shall I take... Shall I then take my bread and my water, my meat, and, I, and what that I've killed for my shears and give it to men from when I don't know where they're from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man gird on his sword, and David also gird his sword, and about 400 men with David, and 200 men stayed with the supplies. Man, David's mad. Oh, he's mad. When David says, Gird your sword, that's not to negotiate. That's not to sing kumbaya. Gird your sword means, no, we're going to, we took, no. It just reminds us, though, emotions are powerful things that God has given us. He's made us emotional. We have emotions, for sure. But we can never forget that it's fact. The person, the work of Jesus Christ, the promises of God's word, the promises of his presence, the right hand of the Father interceding for the believers. Those are all facts. They never change. And then we put our faith in those facts for our life and our life experiences. The memorials, the weddings, the baby dedications, the food and fellowships, all of life experiences that we have, the the highest mountaintop and the lowest valley. We have our faith in the fact that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and all the promises in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. That never changes. And then, so it's fact and faith. Then we put our feelings behind that. Then our feelings can be governed by the fact and our faith in the fact. So we never get off track. It's like Autotopia at Disneyland, right? The car, you can go a little bit this way, and you go a little bit that way, and you can bang someone in front of you, you can bang behind you, but you do not get off the track. Emotions will get us off track. People do things they greatly regret when their emotions take control of them over their faith and the facts of what God's word says. And it's been well said in crisis situations, as the emotion goes up, the common sense goes down. And that's why it's super important in critical situations when the buttons are pushed for lust, wrath, covetousness, whatever it might be, that we take a step back when those emotions are at a high level and we, we just catch our breath and think about what we're doing. David, is he's furious here, and he's about to do something he'd greatly re- uh, regret. But praise the Lord for Abigail, who becomes the heroine of this story. So David's coming to kill these guys, and he's not messing around. 
This is David, the warrior that killed Goliath, killed 200 Philistines for his dowry to marry Saul's daughter. This, this is that David. He's not messing around. And this evil man, Nabal, he's going to be cut down. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, verse 14, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers uh, from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all of his household, for he is such a scoundrel. That one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste, took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five sails of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was as she rode on the donkey, and that she went down under the cover of the hill. There was David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missing of all that belonged to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. So he's getting worked up. You know when you're in the car about to go to talk to someone and give them your mind, a piece of your mind? Like, oh, oh no, no, no. You're not, I'm quitting. You're not firing me. Like, you, he's worked up. When you're, you're going to go see that relative, like, because relatives push buttons like nobody else, and you're just so worked up. You know, when you're going over in your mind, like, oh, this is what I'm going to say. Oh, man. Oh, oh. And it's like, that's how he is. He's thinking these things. He's chewing the cut on these thoughts. I took care of this guy's stuff. He's, uh, he, oh, he's going to get it. He's repaid me evil for good. He is so worked up. And in David's own mind, he's got the moral high ground, because it is true. He has repaid him evil for good. May God do so, and more so also to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning and light. He's just going to wipe everybody out. The house, of, the house of Saul is going to continue. He's made that agreement with Saul, but the house of Nabal, it is not going to continue. Verse 23. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. Now really pay attention as we read these verses. She's on her face before David. So she fell at his feet and said, on me, on me, my Lord, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak to your ear and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, which means fool and follies with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek your harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and to seek your life. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. Remember how David took the stones out to sling Goliath? She knew all the right words. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good he has spoken concerning you. And has appointed you rule over Israel, that this will be of no grief to you, nor offensive heart to my Lord, either that you've shed blood without cause, or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember 
your maidservant. <laughs> you are hard-pressed in the entire Bible to find about 10 verses like this where one human being speaks to another human being with this much wisdom and this wisdom. Now, they came to rehearse. This is a critical situation. You know, some things are time-sensitive and some things, they're time-sensitive. You've got to make quick decisions and they're life-threatening. There are certain decisions that you've got to make You've got to make quick decisions. You can't, you can't wait for AAA to come pick you up at that restaurant in West Texas. It's getting dark, and everyone that comes through there tells you, you better be out here before dark. And you've got to figure out how to get that tire on that car and get it done. You've never done that before. I've never changed a tire. Like, hey, AAA is not coming. Either we get out here before dark to Fort Stockton, or it's really bad on the border with Juarez, and this is where we're at right now. And everyone's telling us we've got to get out here before dark. Or the tornado last two weeks ago, when you're driving surrounded by the most violent storm you've ever seen, and the alarm goes off on your phone like the silver alert or the amber alert, and it says, take shelter right now. You got to make decisions really quick, and you got to keep your wits, and it's time sensitive. I can't, you have to, there's a house here, there's probably a turnaround there. If not, we'll take our time, not being here, we'll turn around, we'll go back to that station here, four miles back, we'll take refuge there, we'll go in the bathroom, whatever. What's the next thing? Keep your wits. Hold it together. This is life-threatening to everyone that Abigail loves. Her entire world is about to be, her entire world is weighed in the balances as David is coming on horses with 400 men to take everything. And it would seem that Nabal is the fool and she's the wise woman behind him that manages the estate, the checkbook, and all these things. So he's prospering while he's a drunken fool having a party even this day. Because you'll see that in the text in a minute. And she has to think. Know and consider what you're going to do. Hey, these are the facts, and you better think right now what you're going to do. Because you've got to do something right now. What are you going to do? And it says in verse 18, she made haste. She didn't seek the approval of a multitude or all those in favor say yay. No, she's like... Boom, 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 boom. These things, these things, these things. Everything I need for the men of David, what my husband should have done, loads it up, sends them in before, gets out there, and by the time she arrives, David's worked up like, he crossed me, he did evil for good, I'm going to... And she shows up like on her face. You know, the Bible tells us a soft answer turns away wrath, right? A soft answer turns away wrath. Here's this beautiful woman, because it says she's beautiful. So she's attractive. David's wife has already been given to another man. And here's this beautiful woman. Not just a beautiful woman, but a wise woman, a Proverbs 31 woman. She is, she is a Proverbs 31 woman. And she just, on me. Husbands, if you can never find a wife, that, that's awesome. That when you're acting like the village idiot, she covers your back and says, on me. Ladies, this is so commendable. This is incredible. On me. You know, in sports, that's what good leadership does. Like, hey, this one's on me. That's on me. That's my error. That's on me. On me. See, some of you just blame everybody else, you know. Maybe she's not, and it's probably not a very happy marriage, but she's like, this, this is on me. On me. On me. Please forgive me. Please forgive us. Please. And then, so she just diffuses the situation, and then comes to this place where she says simply, we know who you are. You're David. 
anointed to be king. And we know what God has for your life. And when you come to the throne, this will be a small thing. And you don't want to regret what you did this day to my husband's house. You don't want to do that. And you know, this is a key moment, guys, because this is a moment where a woman he's never met before. For this man with 600 troops who defeated Goliath with the sword of Goliath in his hand. This woman on her face and the beauty of her inward woman appeals this man to his own benefit to listen to her and heed her counsel. Verse 32 is beautiful. Again, it tells us again why David's such an amazing person. Then David said to Abigail, Blesses the Lord God of Israel. It's kind of like, like, like uh, Ruth, where the Lord was always in that relationship with Obed. It, it's, it's just, it's with Boaz. That Ruth and Boaz always had the Lord in their conversations when we say the book of Ruth. It's the same thing. Like, he's all about the Lord. She's all about the Lord. And then she says this. And it's so the Lord is the common frequency by which they're talking. It's like they're talking the same language. It's like Chinese and Korean, two different languages. But suddenly they find themselves talking or, or Spanish and English. They're, they're, they're talking the same language because the Lord's in it. They don't even know each other. But they know the Lord together. And the spirit of the Lord's working here. And he says, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. And blessed is your advice. And blessed are you because you've kept me this day from coming to bloodshed, from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me surely by morning light, no male would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought to him. And he said to her, Go in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. It is beautiful. Like, really, guys, WG, think about this. This is really beautiful. Again, you say, like, why would God choose David? I mean, he had the adultery later on. He killed Uriah. This is why he chose David. Because even when he's older and made foolish mistakes as an old foolish king, this is still who he is. Even when he's reproved by Nathan the prophet, after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, her husband, he received the correction. So it's a great life lesson for us. For all the foolish things we can do from now to eternity, from the youngest in this room to the oldest, just know this. If you can receive the correction from the voice of the Lord, you will have the heart for the Lord. And you will grow and you will go forward. And you will be blessed for it. And the people that you love will be blessed for it. The people that hate you will be blessed for it. And the people who care less will still be blessed for you. You will make humanity a better place. If you will heed the voice of reproof and correction and restraint from the Lord. Make it your strength. Make the greatest asset of your character that you receive correction and reproof and rebuke when the Lord sets you straight. Because that's how you grow. This woman stopped the great warrior David in his tracks with 400 men. With humility, truth, common sense and good reason we read on verse 36 we finish the chapter now abigail went to nabal and there he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king i guess they say every man's a king of his own house huh and nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk and therefore she told him nothing little or much until morning light so it was in the morning when the wine had gone from nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died with him within him and he became like a stone like a stroke Partial heart attack. Then it happened after 10 days, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. 
So let's be confused who killed Nabal. The Lord struck Nabal. Verse 39. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and has kept his servant from evil, for the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as wife. And when the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose and bowed her face to the earth and said, Here's your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on the donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahonim, Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. David's love life is a bit of a train wreck. I think we know that if we know the story of David, for sure. It gets complicated, but... Again, going back to monarchs, just so you know, because I think he really had a special place for Abigail in his heart. But if you study monarchs, something that almost could never, ever be for a monarch is a king to have a widowed wife, to take a widow, just so you know. Now, obviously, we have widows in this church. It's not a mark against you. That's just how the monarchs of the European timelines would be. He, this woman won his heart in just one moment of conversation. And his love for her and his desire to bless her were all in place. And she became his wife. And thus we wonder, like, I don't really know what her life would have been like in the palace. Obviously, eventually it was Bathsheba's really the woman he loved the most. And he multiplied wives to his own detriment. But know this, when his wives and sons are listed later on, she is listed with her son that she had. So her foolish husband was struck down by the Lord. The man had a heart for the Lord, who she prevented from, from regret with the Lord. That man became her husband, and she had a son with that man, and her son is listed in the sons of the kings, of the King David in 2 Samuel. She got an upgrade. I'm not sure about anything else I can say, but I'm sure to be in the palace with David and have a son with David is a definite upgrade from being married to Nabal. I think we can all agree with that. From the fool to the man at heart for God. But look at her humility. Just, and she came from wealth. She had five full-time employees that went with her. But she just saw herself as the servant of his. She said, I'll be the servant of all those who serve him. Which just closes the deal for us tonight that you can never go wrong with humility. You can never have too much humility. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Her humility saved a lot of innocent lives, saved David from great regret, saved her life, and gave her a better future than the one she was facing just two weeks before this. So praise the Lord. Humility, always in. Wisdom, common sense, always in. Accepting responsibility to the benefit of others, always in. What two amazing chapters. I'm really blessed by these chapters. I hope you are too. And they encourage me this encouraged me that God will set it all straight and that giving to the Lord and walking in humility is always going to be the right thing, always in Jesus' name.